I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. When people say, how long did it take you to write this? You know, you, you don't really know whether the answer to that most correctly is about 18 months or, you know, pushing 40 years. And in some ways, of course, it is pushing 40 years. And I think that what I wanted to do before I got too old to really contemplate it um, was you know, to have my say, I guess, about Roman history. But say, look, you know, I've taught it for a long time. Um, uh, I've sort of got some views about how I think it all hangs together and how I think it's important. Um, but unless I get that down now, you know, I'm, you never know where I might not be here. So uh, I could never have written this book, you know, in my 30s. Uh, and it, in some ways, it's the fruit of decades of teaching. And I think students who I've taught will recognise bits of it. But I mean, you're absolutely right, though, because when you. When you then start start to, to really compose it, and you, you know, I, I had um, some what I suppose I call the tricks of the trade up my sleeve already. I mean, the reason that I start actually very much in the middle of things with Cicero and the Catilinarian conspiracy in sixty three, you know, not quotes the beginning of Roman history at all. That really is partly the fruit of how I found. Uh, good ways of teaching undergraduates. You know, if you say, right, everybody, we're going to start with Romulus now. And you, know, you, know, and you spend the first either chapter or you know, the first lecture or supervision saying, oh, really, we know absolutely nothing about this. And, you know, it's a real downer. So um, I've often, you know, it's an old trick of mine to say, look, let's start where we know something. Let's get to grips with something we know and then go back. But you're absolutely right that when you do that, you've got this kind of overall scheme in your head. And then you realise that actually there are all sorts of bits of Roman history that you've never really done. I mean, you know, you know I think Hannibal for me is, um, you know, of course, you know, when, you know, when I was a kid at school, you know, I, I did bits about Hannibal crossing the Alps. And, you know, I've occasionally taught very briefly, you know, bits about Rome versus Carthage in the Punic War, but had you asked me before I wrote this book actually to say, right, okay, so what is the history of Punic Wars 1, 2, 3, I would have been a bit um, rusty. I'm putting it politely, rusty. And so in a funny way, I think part of the fun for me of doing 
um, was filling the gaps. You know, of, you know, of course, I basically knew the overarching scheme. But you know, it was great going to the library and sort of getting to grips with all the bits that you'd never had to get to grips with before. And in the end, in a funny way, you know, I ended up deciding that the 4th century BC, which I have to say is a bit of a wasteland, both for me and almost everybody else uh, who looks at Roman history, you know, I became more and more interested in it. <laughs> so it was, you know, it was quite... Um, uh, I got a... I suppose what I'm saying is I got a huge amount out of writing. <laughs> I was, yes, I was amazed that you managed to spend so much time on the early period. I thought maybe you'd just skip that. <laughs> so, there's kind of a lot of myths the Romans told themselves. You see, what I decided about that is that, you know, of course, you know, did Romulus and Remus exist? No. Did Aeneas exist? No. Did anybody exist in Rome until, you know, in any meaningful sense until about um, 300 BC? No. Right? On the other hand, the more I read about Romulus and Remus and the myths, and you know, Rome's own stories in its early days, the more I became convinced that that was the building block for understanding how the Romans thought about themselves. But um, it's, it's terribly easy, or it can often seem terribly easy, to take the sheer oddity of Rome's stories about its own origin for granted, you know, there's two twins and one kills the other, and they were, by the way, they've been found by a wolf. Um, and then there's another foundation myth, we're not quite sure how it fits in, but that's with this guy who actually is running away from the Trojan War. And I, I suppose I think that people, or I suppose I think that I in the past, um, wasn't surprised enough by those oddities. You know, to say, right, okay, we've got a foundation myth of Romulus and Remus, and not only is it this rather awkwardness about a pair of twins, but one of them goes and kills the other on the first day of the city. So, you know, Rome sees itself as a city absolutely built on fratricide. Absolutely. That is, you know, fratricide is at the beginning of Rome and never goes away. Now, you can get all kinds of mythographers who say, oh, but you must see these twins in terms of the kind of the archetypal twinship of Indo-European cosmology. Well, no, maybe. That's what I would say. That's right. You know, I thought I'd get it. That's what you'd have done. Well, I think, well, maybe we just mean a pretty handsome you know, but what I know is the Romans always say, of course we're fighting each other because we've always fought each other. Civil war is in our genes. So how, do, how does a, a culture kind of create its own myths? Or how does it decide on what its foundation myths are going to be? God knows, really. I, and, and I think one of the interesting, interesting things and the problems about Rome is that you can see that big things happen in Rome's consciousness about itself, uh, in, in Rome's relationship with their neighbours, almost everything, both inside the Roman head and in um, Roman social and political and military life. Big things happen quite early, <coughs> but they're big things that happen before we have any contemporary evidence. Anyway, it's very, very different from Greece. 
And that, you know, although I mean, ancient historians, I think, both James and myself have been guilty of this sometimes, you know, we're always liable to complain about there not being enough stuff for us, you know, it's always you know, the wrong stuff, the wrong stuff, not enough of it. Um, uh, and that's both true and actually a bit of a downer wherever you look. But one of the problems about saying, how is it that Rome gets those stories about itself, is that we have no contemporary evidence for the moment that he's doing it. By the time we come into Rome, second century BC, really, with um, really a good amount of primary data, those things have already been established. So we're seeing Rome uh, at the moment where it's where some of the building bricks have already got in place. And, of course, the Romans are asking themselves how those building blocks got in place, and they're writing a lot about how they did, but, uh, but you wouldn't believe a word they said, really. And you know, they are busy mythologising their own myths. And they do it in all kinds of ways, some of which overlap with us and some of which don't, and none of which I think we can really believe. You know, so you get um, nice, sceptical, academic historians in the first century BC, you know, who look at the story of Romulus and Remus and the wolf, and they think, that's jolly unlikely, isn't it? So how can we explain that? And they, they usually resort to etymology always do, uh, and they say, hmm, Lupa, that's a word for wolf, that's a really interesting word. Do you know, it also means prostitute. So, do you know, I think Romulus and Remus were not found by this wild creature, they were rescued by a local prostitute, imagine. Now, it's, the Romans are wonderfully inventive. In all this, you know, it's really great fun, but you can see what I mean when you say it's not true. And it's true at some kind of level about Romans, about how they think, but you know, it is as bonkers to imagine that Romulus and Remus were rescued as prop by a prostitute as it is they were rescued by a wolf. But it means a lot. So you've got this period, which I, I think you're talking about 500 to 300. Is that the that's your new favourite? My, my new favourite. <laughs> And it's like a, a closed door and suddenly out of it emerges these Romans with their, this consciousness and this kind of... You, it's, very, it's very, very odd, and I'd not seen this before I wrote the book, because you'd all, I'd always done what everybody does, which is kind of turn away between 500 and 300, because it's all terribly murky. Um, and, you know, let's get on... You know, rightly, I think, in some ways, you say, let's get on to, the, to the, the period of history when we've got Romans talking about Romans themselves, <laughs> contemporary evidence, you know, that's where we really do want to, to um, spend most of our efforts. But it, it did become clear to me that somehow, around 500, from the traces of archaeology that you can see, Rome is still a poxy little, ordinary, extremely boring little village um, by the Tiber. You know, no future, right? By 300, they've got vast walls around themselves and they can't get half of it, do they? Now, between 500 and 300, something big has happened in that community, but we don't know what it was. 
It wasn't the Gauls coming to sack the city and giving them this, this primal trauma. There's all kinds of um, uh, suggestions. You know, people, uh, you know, I'm being a bit unfair when I say no one did this period before. Um, of course, they have, and they've had ideas too. And they, it, you, you're desperate. You try to say, well, what is it that might have changed the way? they thought about themselves and changed what they did. And so you, you desperately kind of clutch at straws. So you say, oh, I know what it was. Uh, they got sacked by the Gauls in 396, and that was a blow to the pride of the early Romans, and it turned them into vicious imperialists. Or, um, do you know, they sacked the neighbouring city of Vey, you know, at about the same time. Um, and that gave them a taste of the conquest. And it's always done in these, I have to say, I'm slightly parodying now, because it, early Rome is always talked about by the Romans themselves and by us. And these are all the grandiloquent terms. You know, Rome was sacked by the Gauls, or Rome sacked Vane. You know, Vane is about 10 miles away from Rome, and it is also a not very impressive village, um, which the Romans in some way did destroy. And the Gauls, this invasion of the Gauls in 396, you know, with some marauding mercenaries probably on their way south. Trampling on their hedges. Yeah. Being a bit bandled. So you, you, you desperately want to find something in that period which, would, which could act as the fulcrum for changing Rome from being deeply, deeply ordinary to being absolutely extraordinary um, within a couple of hundred years. And... None of the explanations are bad, but none of them are better or worse than uh, any other. And when I was I, mean, when I was writing this, I was quite it was I was struggling um, because I thought also there's there's issues in this about imperialism, why why cultures move to expansion, um, and you know that I have to be more theoretical. And a uh, uh, friend of mine. Um, a political sociologist in Cambridge. Uh, you know, I asked him round and I made him read this chapter and um, uh, we, we bashed it about, he knew a bit about the ancient world but that wasn't his territory, his territory is modern political sociology. And then in the end he put the chapter down and he said, do you know Mary, in the end they could have just got lucky. <laughs> and that, that was a huge relief to me because I thought, you know, here is a theoretical political sociologist saying it's okay to say they might just have got lucky. I thought there was a there was that's I mean, you, that's the central tension, isn't it, in the in the book? Which is on the one hand, you've talked about the oddity of Roman culture, even having a the city having a consciousness of a particular kind which emerges at the beginning of their adventure into conquering Italy and the Mediterranean. And on the other hand, this series of contingent, well, possibly lucky uh, happenings, yes. Improvise, they, they, they improvise. Romans are extremely good at improvising. So the consciousness <laughs> is an ability to improvise with whatever yeah. events happen to come their way. And, and in a way, I go down that line, and, and but I also slightly, you know, you can argue back and forth here because you can say, well, it's all very well to say Mary, that the Romans just got lucky and they just improvised. But the problem about that, however true it is, 
is that the direction of travel is broadly speaking a, a single direction. <laughs> you know, this is not a series of totally um, random happenstances where suddenly you say, oh my goodness, we've got, you know, well, <laughs> looks like this. The accidental empire is like, this is like the, you know, all the bad reasons we know for explaining the British Empire. So you've got the, the one side of you which wants to say, there is no master plan here. This is a series of improvisations. But you also have to reckon that the direction of travel is univalent. And I suppose the, the if I have a rabbit out of the hat, it's not they got you know, they got terribly upset when they got sat by the ghouls or they conquered failure or whatever. It's that what the Romans did as a consequence of, way of planning or improvisation or not, we don't know, was that they established what was pretty, pretty well, not absolutely entirely, but pretty well unique in the ancient world, which was a pattern of incorporating into Roman citizenship the people that they met and conquered. So that if you take, you know, if you take what traditional war, warfare in the peninsula of Italy was like. Go, go back here if you like. As long, you know, 7th, 8th, 6th century BC, as long as there's been warfare, as far as we can tell. You know, what happens is um, village A sends a party of lads out and it duffs over village B. Now, maybe actually village B sends them packing, or village B gets um, trashed. Uh, the lads then take some slaves, take some cows, go back home and say, see you next year. And then the same sort of thing happens, and village A or village B, and it's, it's, it's a, a system, if you want to put it more grandly, but of endemic warfare, i.e., relationship between different small communities, we call them states, but you know, we're talking about populations of a thousand here, um, are uh, regulated and kept in check, I think, by regular low-level bouts of violence. Uh, now what Rome does, which is absolutely crucial, is it breaks that pattern because it doesn't just go back and say, see you next year. It says, right, okay, now, now we're going to be in alliance. Or, or now you're going to be, you're, you can come and be Roman citizens. Now, I don't think this is a, a generosity. I don't think that the people of Vey particularly wanted to be Roman citizens. You know? And we, you know, there's plenty of examples in the 20th century of knowing that the imposition of citizenship you know, isn't, a, isn't a mild and liberal gesture. Um, but what you get, is however it goes down, is you get Rome increasing its citizen body that way. And in the ancient world, if you increase your citizen body, you increase your manpower, your fighting force. So basically, Rome gets to be able to deploy more and more troops on the ground by that mechanism. Whether whether a cabal of senators had sat down in 400 and said, do you know what would be a good plan, Marcus? If we made them all citizens, they then have to fight for us. Or whether somehow um, they established a pattern without understanding its consequences. 
And in the ancient world, there is nothing that wins you a battle better than having more boots on the ground. You know, the ancients do not win battles because they have better hardware. You know, very, very occasionally, some Roman will invent a particularly nasty form of ballista or something, but it's not really making a difference. They, they aren't, you don't win because you're more militaristic, because all of them are militaristic. The Romans are no more militaristic than anybody they're meeting. They are quite militaristic. They're all militaristic. <laughs> the Romans, yeah, the Romans, actually, in our terms, are horribly militaristic. But so are, you know, so are everybody there fighting. You know, I, I think this is the asterisk problem. You know, we, we have a version, and we, you know, if we read asterisk when we were little, as I did, um, that we somehow internalize that um, they're the Romans, and they're, they're all in you know, wearing armour, and they're a bit stupid, but they're sitting together in testudos, and they're going out and they're trampling across the, uh, the Gauls. And the poor old Gauls are really nice, you know, and, and they kind of sew and dance and cook and bore, and they have magic potion. And the Romans are nasty militaristic brutes. Now, it's true that the Romans are nasty militaristic brutes, so are the Gauls. <laughs> One visiting Greek in the early first century BC said, Good, if you're going to Gaul, you have to get used to the decapitated heads of their enemies being stuck, over, stuck up on the outside of their huts. Uh, but you get used to it after a while. <laughs> so it's, it's not that the Romans are more militaristic. It's not they got better tactics. You know, we've totally fetishized Roman military tactics. All they do when they're getting really clever is just go round the back. That's <laughs> <laughs> all any Why they win is they've got more blokes. And so, you know, as I say, my rather structural rabbit out of the hat is that what is happening here is a change in the version of what it is to belong to Rome, how you belong, and that converts into um, numbers of troops. And, it, it, and it's as simple or as difficult as that. So that's the oddity. <laughs> that's the oddity. It's the, the opportunism. And, uh, it's, it's opportunism, but it's also something that Rome starts to invest in. And, and this is where you know, there's actually, in some ways, a bit of a spurious familiarity in terms of Rome's patterns of <coughs> dealing with the outside world uh, and our own issues about citizenship and, and asylum. And it's not that that happens, but when you see for the first time how they tell their foundation stories... Um, that's not before the second century, at the very earliest, really. Um, you know, Rome's already got an empire by then. You know, this is um, when you see them for the first time having a go at telling them, uh, telling where they came from. They are already invested into the idea that Rome is a culture which spreads its citizenship. You know? And so, you know, what does Romulus do when he founds his city? He murders his brother first. Um, then he thinks, oh, blimey, we haven't got any citizens. Right? You know, got, you know, he's got a few mates from out the sheep farm. Um, so how do you get citizens? Well, it's kind of the Australian myth, actually. He gets and he says, anybody can come to my city. You can be a criminal, you can be a runaway slave, you can be a silent seeker. Everybody can come here and be Roman. And 
That also is a very, very peculiar myth of origin of the city to have, particularly in Jones, knows much more about this than me, but particularly in relation to the Greek world, where by and large, there, there are exceptions, if you say to a, a Greek citizen, where does your city come from? It'll be some version of they miraculously came up from the soil, right? Our first citizens, you know, they kind of, in, in some form, emerged from the very ground on which our city was founded. And Rome is saying, they're a load of runaways. And then when they, as they probably do, add the story of Aeneas later, he's a refugee. And so it is, you know, it is Australia and New York kind of as, as a foundation with all rolled into one. And it is absolutely uh, so odd in ancient terms. Because in, in a Greek city, you could be, you could have lived in that city for several generations. You could be a third generation resident in Athens and still have no prospect of ever becoming a citizen. <laughs> What about slaves? When do the children of freedmen, when are they allowed to become citizens automatically? Again, we, the, the other thing which is quite surprising, extremely surprising, in the, the patterns of what we can see about ancient or modern slavery, is that um, you know, slavery is um, an absolutely central part of Roman social organisation. But when, as they frequently are in some contexts, uh, I'd say in some contexts, because um, it's not quite as rosy and liberal, I think, as people sometimes make it, when slaves get given their freedom, if they are freed by a Roman citizen, they become a Roman citizen. So you leap from uh, being having no citizen, no rights, really almost as a person at all, to being a Roman citizen with almost no disadvantages against freeborn Roman citizens. You can't serve in the army and you can't hold political office, but your descendants can. Now, when that first happened, again, is one of those things we can't see. By the, by the time we see it, by the time we see slavery functioning in Rome, uh, that already seems to be the pattern. When it started being the pattern, it's very hard to know. It, and it's confused by the fact that early slavery in Rome is almost certainly like an awful lot of early slavery. It's, um, it's bonded labour for debt. It's basically debt bondsmanship. It's not, it's not chattel slavery, it's not buying and selling. And the moment we come into Roman history with a contemporary view in the second century BC, they've already conquered great swathes of the Mediterranean. And what they have got as their major, um, as, as the major profit is humans. So, so we are, our, our first really clear glimpse of Rome is that moment when it's already got not just um, indebted labour, and that form of unfree labour that every ancient society has. It has um, vast, vast numbers of slaves who are bought and sold. And at that point, it's clear that when they are given their freedom, or when they are made to save up their pocket money for their freedom, whatever, um, they become Roman citizens uh, 
at that point. And, and that, is, that is so um, dramatic in its effects on the Roman citizen body that it, it's very, very guesstimate territory. But if we were to fast forward a couple of hundred years to the end of the first century AD, around 100 or perhaps a bit later, people reckon that probably more than half the free citizen population of Rome have slave ancestry. And that has enormous consequences for the ethnic and cultural mix of Rome because, the, because an awful lot of those slaves are coming from the Greek world, North Africa, um, what we call the Near East. They're coming from Rome's conquered territories. And so it, that also generates um, cultural diversity. Related to that is the, is the centrality of adoption, which is another really strange thing. Now, the way that become adopted into another family, even as adults, and then that would become their real family, so to speak. They would share the honours and the... I think that's interesting. I think that goes, in a sense, side by side. That Romans became adept, for whatever reason, at letting people become something different from what they were born. Uh, whether that is becoming free when they were born slave, or becoming Roman when they were born you know, Corinthian, or becoming a member of X's family when they were born into Y's family. And there are uh, extremely powerful examples of um, you know, Scipio Aemilianus, uh, the man who famously annihilated Carthage in 146 and you know, wept crocodile tears as he did it, um, he was adopted into um, the family of the Scipios because they didn't have a, a, a suitable um, surviving heir. And Romans are extremely, in our terms, it's quite, extremely laid back about it. And it, that, that factors out, interestingly, when you get to the second century AD. And one of the problems of the Roman Empire, once you've got an <coughs> empire in the sense of having a single ruler, and I, just to kind of put this into context, I think one of the puzzling things which I try to explore in the book is that uh, the basic fact you have to grasp about Rome is that it gets its empire when it's a democracy. And it doesn't have an emperor until it's got its empire. And one tends to think, just because of the name, that emperors made the Roman Empire. They didn't. Uh, a Roman democracy, quasi-democracy, um, I shall say that because James will object otherwise. Um, well, you convinced me. You totally convinced me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was a democratic system that got the empire, and then the empire, in many ways, the demands ruling the empire, um, produced emperors, single rulers, and in a sense, eradicated the democracy. Now, when you get to the second century, um, what is very striking is that after the first few emperors, uh, following the first emperor Augustus, there'd been an attempt to say this was hereditary. 
Um, and there are all kinds of mishaps, famous mishaps, you know, on the way. You know, Caligula, there's no one better. I, Claudius. Well, well, yes, that's right. I, Claudius, that's the problem about making a hereditary empire. In the second century, they do what modern scholars have always treated as a bit odd, is you have a series of adoptive emperors, and that you have um, the Emperor Trajan is adopted by Nerva, the Emperor Hadrian is adopted by Trajan, with no relationship of blood between any of these people, only Tiny's at all. And it's quite hard for people to kind of get their head around that. It's very, somebody picks, you know, if you're an emperor, you pick somebody else, and then you say, he's now my son. Yeah, actually, it is absolutely standard for, for Roman elite, and that's probably non-elite behaviour, right back as far as we can see, that you can become a member of somebody else's family. At each point, the, the idea that you can become something else other than what you are, um, and not in some ways lose the connections with um, uh, your previous existence, is... is Absolutely taken for granted. You know, you can be you know, again. This is extraordinary for the ancient world. You can be a citizen of two places, and it's perfectly all right to be a citizen of Pompeii and a citizen of Rome. And there's no kind of Norman Tebbit test involved. You know, no one's saying, "Well, who are you supporting in the great game manager?" <laughs> that is fine. Now, why they did this? And names are very important, aren't they? They have, I mean, in lots of parts of the ancient world. Greece especially, you would just have one name and a place you were, you come from. But the Romans, for a very long period, had, did they, have, did they always have three names or they had two names? They, they, they always had a surname. They always have, a, they always have a, a family name, they have a first name, and then they gain a third name. And in the end, the idea of having three names defines Roman citizens. And it, it's, also, it's wonderfully diagnostic of what it is to be Roman, because the family, now everybody in your family is going to be called Tullius. You know, Marcus, Tullius, Cicero, uh, and your family name is your family name, and there's hundreds of them, every brother. <coughs> and then you'll have a, a, a first name, Marcus, or Publius, or Quintus. Not very many of those, they're rather, you know, they're rather unimaginative set of first names. Um, and also they tend to go in families. And then, in a wonderfully typical where you have this extra name. And the extra name is almost always slightly derogatory. You know, it's, you know, it's Flaccus Fatty, or um, Cicero Chickpea, um, or Calvus Baldy, or, you know, that's what, to some extent we've got it, because I'm about to use, you know, Barbatus Beardy. Uh, um, so you have this wonderful little glimpse of... Um, slightly derogatory individuality <laughs> when you're being added to this uh, absolutely standard familial name that all your ancestors are going to have had since way back. And they parade those ancestors, don't they? And they kind of impersonate them <laughs> as funerals, like uh, Roman That's funeral. Really weird. Oh, that is really, I mean, the Romans are actually extremely odd, you know. <laughs> very odd. You know, you go to a Roman funeral, I think the thing that would really shock us in a Roman funeral, surprise us, is that they've got all these masks of their ancestors. This is only rich funerals, mind you. This is not the peasant's 
Um, and the young current members of the family put on the mask of their dead ancestors. Uh, and they wear the, the particular insignia of their dead ancestors' most senior office. If that wasn't bad enough, when it comes to giving a funeral oration to the dead man, you get all sitting up a bit like this uh, on the rostra in the forum speaker's platform, and they prop up the corpse. <laughs> He's not in a coffin. He is propped up on a board to listen to the funeral oration. <laughs> While the guys, and they are all guys, who are um, impersonating the ancestors sit around him. So the corpse is there listening to his achievements being recited in the company of his dead ancestors being impersonated by his living descendants. And what would be weirder than that? <laughs> so it's as if, on the one hand, the family is really important to them, but, but anybody can join if you, know, if you go through the proper procedures. The other thing I, was, I think is really odd about the Romans, compared to the Greeks especially, is the protocols. And they seem to be very obsessed with procedures and forms. And That's where they're just like us. Social structures. <laughs> they would understand health and safety and tech problems. You know, I think sometimes, you know, I think living in the modern world is like living with a slightly obsessive Roman. <laughs> You know, um, it is a very strange, when you look at it and you forget about your own experience, it, it, it is very striking. You, know, you, uh, you do, um, everything has to be done right. Especially in religion. So if you don't get it right, you have to do it all over again. Right? So um, the sacrifice will have to be repeated if the protocols aren't gone through. Um, uh, and you find people um, worrying about this. Now, sometimes it looks as if it might have been a useful excuse, but General A has sacrificed to the gods on his way out to fight the Spaniards. Off he goes two months away and then thinks, oh gosh. I did that sacrifice in the wrong order. <laughs> Back he goes <laughs> to Rome to do it all over again. Now, you can see it's not hard to understand how some people have suspected that um, the, the, the Romans were quite good at manipulating their obsession with protocol. Actually, said general desperately wants to go back to Rome, right? You know, he's not having a great time fighting the Spaniards, and anyway, you know, he's either wants to marry his daughter off or stand for office the next year or something, so he says, oh my God, I just didn't do it, I'm afraid. No, absolutely no option, got to go back. That's how it works. <laughs> well, that's how it always works. <laughs> If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Do you want to, okay. Shall I, shall I one more question. Well, I was, it's a big question. I'll, I'll be brief. I'll I was thinking about the trajectory of Roman history, that you go from this, it's got a plot, which is that they get rid of kings, and they spend how many years, 500 years, trying to make sure the kings don't come back. And they get kings. And then, in front of their eyes, they get kings again. Yeah. It's really as if they've, they've been trying all their time, all their history to avoid what happens with Augustus and Octavian. Yeah, it's an odd way of relating to your history, isn't it? But they, they debate about that and they manage to have it in very many different ways <coughs> because one of the things you're going to say uh, when you get one man rule again, you say, this isn't monarchy. You know? yeah. if, if anybody had gone up to these Roman emperors and said, you're a load of kings, uh, they would have objected virulently that they were not kings, that they were principes, or they were first, they were first citizens. Or, you know, the, the title Augustus, which the first em- emperor takes, which is actually terribly North Korean, because it means revered one. And so actually, Roman emperors were, were called, you know, it's just like Kim Il-jong, you know, they were called a revered one. Uh, but they're not kings, you know, and some poor buggers in Rome will have the misfortune to have their surname as Rex, which was the word for king. <laughs> Quite how this happened, it's never very clear, but it, 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 it was a bit of a disadvantage. <laughs> um, and yet they're always vulnerable, as James said, that you know, they, they think once they throw out the kings at the end of the early monarchy, they think that they've got rid of them, and the one, one thing that Rome is never going to have again, ever, 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 is a king. And they spend a hell of a lot of time uh, telling themselves that they've never had a king after that. And yet, of course, they're vulnerable to people saying, look, one man rule, what's the difference? You know, it was the difference between Caligula and a king. 
And someone like, you know, the best historian ever in the world, I think, Roman historian Tacitus, starts his uh, account of the early bit of the Roman Empire, one-man rule, sense the word empire, um, and the first sentence of the book is, Rome's always had kings. From the very beginning, Rome's always had kings. Now, we read that, you need to do Latin translation, it's quite easy to translate, and you don't give it a moment's thought. Uh, actually, it is but the most subversive thing that a Roman historian could say, that Rome's always had kings. <gasps> So it's, the, the, these things are very edgy, and I think that, you know, just to, to finish a bit with a kind of um, comparison with Greece, I think that the modern world, not the 18th century or early 19th century world, the modern world has tended to forget the edginess of Roman history. <coughs> it's tended to see things in, you know, the clash in Greece between democracy and oligarchy and uh, the development of particular forms of popular power as, as actually very, you know, um, radical, contested, and and you know, edgy. And Rome has become. You know, something happened to Rome. Uh, you know, about 1880, 1870, when Roman politics started to be boring. You know, the best you could say for it was that there were some very nasty autocrats and good stories attached. You know, otherwise. There wasn't an issue in Roman politics. There was very little um, political drive. It was a load of people like Cicero putting on togas, you know, dressing in sheets and standing like that. Um, and there wasn't any feeling that this was exciting. And Greek history had by that stage become exciting. And Roman history had been had, had lost its its kind of sense of danger. And I think one of the things I'd like the book to do is actually to put back a bit of that sense of danger into Roman history. That, you know, you know, when dear old Tacitus comes along and says, Rome's always had kings, we ought to gasp when we read that and say, you know, you, know, you deserve to be put in prison for saying that. <laughs> right, shall we open this up for questions? Um. Do you think what you were saying about how the Romans had a thing about how you could be one thing and then be another without necessarily losing all their history, do you think that affects the way that people like Tacitus view the change from republic to empire? Um, I think that's a very interesting question. You know, I think, you know, can, if you take what James and I have been saying about um, the development of a, of, a, of, a, of a person becoming, um, what does what? How do you then think about states becoming something different? And in a way, I suppose you could say, look, what does Augustus do? He um, he gives you what he's determined not to call, but is monarchy, while leaving every bit of the republic in place. You know, for you know, in fact, for decades, some form of election. You know, the most amazing thing about uh, the fall of Roman democracy and Augustus's establishment of a monarchy is you can, you can look as hard as you like and you can't find him abolishing anything. You know, if you think that this was in some ways a revolution from democracy to effectively one-man rule, you expect a revolution to get rid of something. But Augustus's revolution doesn't get rid of anything. 
So, I mean, I suppose in a way it's quite a nice analogy, isn't it, to say that you know, it's like Scipio Aemilianus starting off in the family of Aemilius Paulus, still somehow being in the family of Aemilius Paulus, but then being a Scipio. Um, because there's been, there's a, and people, I think, tend to write, or have tended sometimes to write Augustus off as if he was somehow operating by a sleight of hand, you know. He pretended that the Republic was still working, when actually it was really a monarchy. And you think, that is damn stupid. You know, the Romans are not idiots. You know, they didn't sit there, you know, having the wall pulled over their eyes, you know, and saying, oh, you know, I rather like this continuing democracy we still have. <laughs> you know, just it's a monarchy. And, you know, it isn't. I mean, I still go to the Senate. You know, that's never, that never always it'd be even bonkers to me that somehow, um, uh, Maybe it's about protocols as well. Isn't it? It's like the forms and the protocols, the institutions still exist, the rituals. It's all hollowed out. It doesn't mean what it used to mean. The content is all. Gone. That's a very cynical way of saying it, isn't it? We say hollowed out. It's really empty. Or it is somehow a way of reformulating what we used to have to be something new. <laughs> I think the worst thing, I think, I mean, I don't know how many people there are in this room, but I thought there's about 400. When Augustus, because he was so keen on James' protocols, when he went into the Senate House, uh, he, as he often did, because the Senate went on meeting, you know, under the, uh, under the rule of the emperors, he used to greet, he used to go around the whole Senate House greeting every single person by name and shaking their hand. And you think, that's written down as if it's to his credit. Think, how long would it take? You know, so did they really sit there while Augustus went round? Each one of you saying, good morning, Marcus, you know, very nice to see you. Now, is this a kind of, you know, mad attempt to, uh, to assert a kind of friendliness on the part of the empire? Or they all, do they all think it's great? You know, I bet Julius Caesar didn't know the names of the junior senators. So, you know, it may be, maybe everybody's very pleased that the emperor says hello to everybody. Just say hello, everybody. They're all guys. Okay. <laughs> and I, I reckon it must take about three quarters of an hour. <laughs> That's before the business starts. But it's an interesting, it's an interesting way to see. Just to, just to follow up on that, I mean, there seems to be quite a lot of evidence that Roman emperors engaged in a huge amount of bureaucratic uh, activity, you know, setting laws for this town or that town or this governor or that governor. And uh, I think that, presumably, that actually is part of the thing that knits the whole empire together and makes everybody feel they belong in it. But it's, it's, it's a tremendous cost in terms of personal involvement in work. Yeah. I mean, the idea that they were somehow or other sort of had a great time, you know, they were just very rich and in charge of everything. And what I've seen, they were absolutely driven all the time. One, actually I think important and plausible view about Roman emperors is that, you know, you know they haven't got time to kill flies because they're busy at the desk, um, uh, you know, signing things off from morning till night. And I think that that must be a, a, a rather major aspect of Roman rule. But there are, there are then questions that follow. Um, 
in some ways you say, okay, so I think of Vespasian, one of the people who's really you know, down to earth emperor doing this. Um, but are the emperors really doing it? You know, when I read an article in the newspaper which is signed David Cameron, do I think that David Cameron wrote it? Well, no. You know, I think there is something about David Cameron's name being there, which means something. It's not totally meaningless, but I know absolutely for a fact that he did not sit down late at night writing his article for The Guardian, you know? Um, so, actually, we, how do we know when we see something signed by an emperor that it was written by an emperor? Well, maybe, but we don't. But if it's not, who is in charge? Who is running the Roman Empire? I mean, I think one of the, the problems is that difficult, mad, autocratic as it seems, we, we have a picture of what it would be like to have monarchical rule and a pyramid in which the emperors are at But actually, we might be having something in which the emperor's name is used all over the place, the emperor's signet ring is you know, passed around and you know, validating all kinds of documents that are actually written by the people. But if they are written by the people, who are the other people? And at that point, you get glimpses of where the power of ex-slaves becomes one of the... Um, the, the big problems for the elite in the Roman, uh, in, in, under the Roman imperial system. Um, you know, what, who's the emperor going to use? Who can the emperor trust? Well, you can't trust, you, you can't trust high-ranking senators because they're after your job. You know, so you can trust eunuchs <laughs> and slaves. Uh, eunuchs aren't going to be much good for the old um, uh, hereditary materials. <laughs> Um, uh, and, that, and that's a worry. And the, the point is that this is where you then put it next to all the stories of good emperors and bad emperors and stuff. And if you look at the evidence we have about provincial administration, say, it makes not a blind bit of difference whether you've got mad Caligula, mad Nero, or mad Domitian on the throne, or whether you've got obsessively knee grinding Tiberius or sensible Vespasian or, you know, visionary Augustus, everything seems to happen just as it always does. <laughs> that that must be either that all the stories are wrong, or that some of the stories are wrong, or that there's a, an imperial machine that is very hard to see, to identify, but is somehow running the show. It's Pliny's Plin letters are the problem, aren't they? It gives this impression that he's constantly writing from his governorship to Trajan, and Trajan is answering it, he did <laughs> Yeah, Trajan sometimes, uh, Pliny, the younger Pliny's great, um, a great letter writer, absolutely tedious bore in many other respects. <laughs> um, and he's constantly wanting to say, when he's governed the province, uh, the province of Bithynia, he's constantly writing back to Trajan, you know, to parade. You know. So I've got this real problem with a brick wall that's fallen down between the two properties of a rival town. You know, and and, and so there's hundreds of letters, well, it's over a hundred letters to Trajan on all these kinds of things. And sometimes you feel that whether it's Trajan or you know Trajan's secretary writing back, you know, tends to get a bit 
drawn on it. Um, still very easy to see how it works. The, the dead person's invention of a water-driven sawmill. Uh, the soy stone. And, you know, there it is. It's just what you, you know, it, it seems terribly familiar because it's all drawn out and you've got these kind of pulleys and things like that. And then you think, there's so little of that in the, in the room. This guy was obviously dead proud of it. It was his, it was his achievement, but his too. But it's one of a handful of examples. And I think it is, it's, it's difficult. Water and plumbing and aqueducts, weren't they? When you go down into engineering rather than technological innovation, then of course you get a lot. But the, the, the funny thing is, of course, if you say, look, what do, you know, Romans do get a lot of water into towns. What do they use it for? And of course, we would like to think that this was really for plumbing, sanitation, um, you know, you know, mod cons. And the truth is that the prime uses, if you look at places like Pompeii and Herculaneum, the prime uses of the water supply, there are some tanks for public use, but where they really put in their effort? Into the baths and into garden fountains. <laughs> there is more water in Pompeii used for garden ornaments than for um, providing nice clean water for them. Which is also part of the, the, the elite driver of this country. You've, uh, you've spoken very pointedly uh, around some areas of Roman history and how they relate back to um, modern political figures that we know today. So, uh, David Cameron, you've made comparisons between, and uh, Kim Jong il. Um, <laughs> would you say that with figures? completely polar opposites where you have one kind of cult of personality and one who is perhaps completely underrepresented from what we know and behind the scenes is more important and what he does in the shadows is more important. Um, looking just at Roman history, is there anything when you write your books and when you study, is there any kind of culture that you really comfortably draw overarching comparisons with that we know today? I think not, really. And I, I, uh, I think it's a it's a it's a difficult tightrope because you you don't want to say look I'm going to study Roman history and let me tell you it has absolutely nothing to do with anything we're interested in there. No, there's no similarities nothing um, anything well why bother um, but then there's the real danger that you get and I've partly slipped into it tonight of um, making it look too familiar. And I'm saying, oh, uh, uh, you see it in newspapers all the time, you know. Uh, if only we'd followed the Romans, of, you know, the Roman example, we wouldn't have invaded Afghanistan. I think what you want to do, what I tried to do, and, and it's very easy to slip from this very narrow tightrope, what I tried to do is to say, we need to, first of all, help the Romans talk to us. We need to set up that conversation, and that's about, sometimes it's exploring things that feel similar then turn out not to be. I think that's, that's one thing. I think also that um, the, they point up, uh, putting sometimes putting the modern world and the ancient world together, point up things 
that make us feel slightly uncomfortable, whether it's in our view of ancient history or in our view of modern politics. And I do think that Augustus is a good example of that. Now, if you say to um, a group of ancient historians, okay, so what does the word Augustus mean? Well, so, well, it's a kind of religious word. Um, and then if you say, well, don't you think it's a bit North Korean? And then, actually, they look quite shocked, you know, as if somehow, you know, their founding father of the Roman, um, Rome with one man rule, you know, the one really good emperor there was, the idea that he might be a bit North Korean, or that North Korea, heaven, my God, might actually be a bit like Augustus, and that, as it were, undermines another set of prejudices we have. I think that's quite useful. As long as you don't, I think the, the thing that you have to resist wholeheartedly is that the ancient world has got lessons to teach us. It can help us think harder about some of the problems that, that anybody shares because they live in a complicated community. Uh, but there is not a single lesson in antiquity for us. <laughs> Thank heaven. <laughs> Thank you. So uh, I'm fascinated with this question of historical methodology. The size of the book was mentioned relative to the scope of the subject. I'm curious, how do you as a historian commit as a historical triage? How do you decide what to talk about and to include? As a postgraduate, I have this anxiety of omitting <laughs> things in papers. I'm told always depth over breadth, but you just don't want to be the person who, who fails to include something that's essential. So how, how do you commit this historical triage? What kind of scalpel would you recommend? Well, <laughs> I think it's easier when you're 60. Because <laughs> you don't have to please your supervisor. Um, you know what's important. Or you think you know what's important or you know what's important to you. I mean, look, the truth is the book um, should have been 100 pages shorter. You know, I was not um, contracted to write a book of 600 pages. Uh, luckily for me... Um, it, it was a bit late, so the publishers didn't say, sorry, Mary, it's got to be 500 pages. They were so bloody relieved to have got a manuscript that I got away with it. Um, I, I think that all sorts of things, you know, people... You know, people are both, I think, sometimes rightly and sometimes wrongly, you know, said, oh, yeah, hasn't got... So, somebody said in an Amazon how can she skip so quickly over the Punic Wars? <laughs> I perhaps don't want to tell them the truth. Um, I think that James is right in a way. You kind of... I, I, I've sort of come to conclusions that work for me about what I think is important. And what that means is I can't... There'd be all kinds of ways I could talk about those, and all kinds of examples that I could use, even favourite ones, but well, I'm going to get in because it would be three volumes. I think the real criterion is saying every example you use, every, every person you talk about, has got to do a job for your argument. You know, it's no good saying, well, I happen to think that Scipio Barbatus is a rather interesting character. You say, what is he doing in your story, Mary? 
And I, so, I, so for me, it's making sure that not how am I going to get everything in, but am I certain that everything is plays its part? You know, is is worth it? It is worth it you know, being on the payroll of the book. And you know, I think, by and large, the academics. But it's easy for me to say, you know, they're too anal about putting everything in. It's so boring when you put everything in. You know, there's footnotes with everything. You know, I want to know. I want to know what you think. I want to know what your argument is. And I want you to convince me by the examples that you use that I can trust you. Not that I agree with you necessarily. You know, there's all sorts of differences about agreement on particular interpretation. But basically, you know, I want to, to, to you to show me by showing a bit of your working that I can trust you. And after that, I don't want every bloody example that I just happen to know you've got by Googling anyway. I'm not Googling, you know. <laughs> and I don't want every bloody theorist mentioned, as Foucault so rightly said. Um, but I think it's much easier to do it when, you, you know, when you've got a thicker skin and you're 60. But does that also mean that nowadays... The, the business of writing scholarly books has changed because of the internet and people. Yeah, I mean, when I was a, a, a graduate student, we would be interested sometimes, as you often were, in looking at the usage of an individual word. I remember my supervisor saying to me uh, that when you said... Um, there is no example of this word being used. He said, Mary, you must always put, so far as I know, there is no example. Now, now you don't have to put, so far as I know, because you just do an internet search, a computerized it, you know, and you can write a whole thesis on the basis of you know, how often X word is used in what context, and bloody boring it is too. And, you know, in some ways, it was better when you had to say, so far. I know, there's a bit of humility about that um, and uh, so I think there is as James says, I think there is a kind of difference when there are some things that we now can know and that does make you force you to say, so why do I want to know, you know what's the point of knowing this now why and uh, you know, I'm all for abstruse scholarship you know, somebody wants to write abstruse scholarship, you know, and that's what they want to do, and that's their agenda. I'm fine with that, just as long as they've been, uh, you know, open. I don't want everybody to be committed to writing, you know, um, uh, books that are going to, you know, sell to a lot of people. I, I think, you know, one of the things I'm very pleased about academic life is that there are some books that are really good, and they're bought by 100 people, and that's it. And I think that's what academic life is and should be, and some of my books fall almost into that category, I am proud to say. But you just have to know what you're doing and why you're doing it. And what, what, what is this fact for? You said that um, runs um, enable people to become something that they haven't been. Is there any respect that that applies to females? Uh, that's a, a, a tricky one. I mean, <coughs> y yes, because on basic definitions of citizenship, 
women, Roman women are citizens, <coughs> though they do not have any political, they're citizens without political rights. Um, so that when a female slave is freed, she will become a female Roman citizen on the same terms as a freeborn female Roman citizen. Now, it's not as marked uh, because Roman political institutions and political rights and Roman identity is very heavily talked about in terms of men. You know, if you, you know, sadly, um, that's true. You could do that argument a bit about marriage, and you could say, look, um, what does Romulus do after he said, okay, you know, everybody come here because I want some blokes in my new city. You know, first of all, realise he hasn't got any men. What's his next problem? Oh shit, I haven't got any women either. You know, so how does he get the women? Well, he gets the women by a trick, by the rape of the Sabine women. Um, uh, uh, invites all his neighbours in, says, come along, come to a nice festival, blows a whistle, and all these young toughs, these runaway thieves and things, carry off the visiting ladies. Um, now, that's often told in that sort of slightly kind of boyish way that I've just told it. In, in another way, you could tell that as a story about change of status of women. And you could, I suppose, say that you know, women in every ancient community that we know, women are mobile in marriage. You know, they become members of another family. That's, in some ways, that's why they're always thought to be slightly dangerous. <coughs> That's another story. I also wanted to ask something about the sort of social mobility um, aspect of it and really whether you have any idea uh, what facilitated that, whether there was any kind of equality of opportunity or just sort of patrician kind of <laughs> luck or whatever. Um, equality of opportunity, I think, no. I, I think it's, a, it's always wealth, money. And um, the, you know, one of the big things that's happening in Rome between, let's say, the late fourth century and the first century is it's getting much, much richer. And, and there are all kinds of opportunities of self-advancement, self-aggrandizement that come with that across the empire. Now, that's contested because... You know, one of the things that the traditional elite want to say is, they, you know, they want to be very snobbish about where wealth comes from. They want to say, oh, people who actually make money in trade um, rather than in landed wealth. Um, you know, that's really, you know, that's really naff. And so there's an awful lot of snobbishness within Roman society, but actually there are a lot of people starting little and becoming rich. And there's, you know, if um, my old uh, um, teacher in a way, Keith Hopkins, who was a professor of ancient history, was here, he would say also um, the social mobility in Rome is hugely helped by demography. <coughs> that although Romans go on and on, you know, not only about snobbishness, but about how you know, the elite is a stable elite and is self-replacing, you know, and consuls have consuls. As soon as you look at the democratic tr demographic truth, 
and at the likely birth and death rates. You're seeing that um, social mobility is almost certainly at some level to be bound into the system because the elite can't replace itself. Um, and that's, that is another factor, that however much they mask it, um, they, you know, families die out, elite families die out, they, don't, they can't actually, they, their ideal of being a self-replacing elite is unattainable given um, the demography of, of, of Roman or pre-modern culture. And in fact, that's true of all pre-modern cultures. No, pre, no pre-modern elite claims Uh, just wondering about the toughness, I suppose, that we've been alluding to. Yeah, calling uh, each other horrible names and uh, and also perhaps drawing attention back to the the point that we made about mathematics. This lack of mathematics, perhaps like Archimedes being murdered by Mark Ellis's men. Um, is that is that just a myth? Then are we saying this, this toughness of, of Romans? No, I, 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 but I, I think that um, all ancient cultures are tough. You know, don't believe a word about you know the Minoans of Crete being you know lovely goddess worshippers who like flowers. You know, um, ancient societies wherever you find them are tough and brutal and nasty. Now the point is uh, that we hear the Romans have left us a testimony to their toughness. Um, so, I have to say, sparing James' presence, so the Athenians, although we have tended to prefer to see the intellectual side of Athens, not the murderous side, no, there was plenty of that. Um, uh, so I think it's a horrible, brutal, tough world. Uh, it's mitigated, I think, by their intellectual interest in that toughness. You know? that, that it's not an unreflectively tough world. And I suspect the Gauls were pretty unreflectively tough, really. But the Romans are not unreflectively tough. And I, I think, in a sense, one of the things that, that gives them a deserved place in our attention is that they talk about it. You know, and I, so I think if you go back to the basic points of imperialism, that um, the truth is that the biggest critiques of Roman imperialism come from Romans. Um, They're good at analysing their own culture, you know, and to give you what I think is probably the best example, dear old Tacitus again, you know, than whom no one is smarter, when he looks at the consequences of imperialism in Britain, Roman Imperium, what does he say? He says the famous phrase, they make a desert, we make a desert, and we call it peace. Now, there is no, there ha, I think there's never been, you know, any better, any better uh, summing up of the downside of empire than that. And that is, you know, to go back to the point about whether we, can, we should be talking to the Romans, you know, I think it behoves us to look at the deserts that we've made you know, in the last 50 years and decided to call peace, you know, I guess Tacitus is still a spot one. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. 
For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.